Ready for a teaser? Okay, there is no teaser because I left my hard drive at home and now I have to re-record my original intros and outros on iPhone earbuds for the final podcast of 2019. I tell you, this year, in a lot of ways, was a one-way train to Bummerville. But Sonia Hamer, she joins me this week and we talk about a piece she wrote for creative nonfiction's true story called Pig in SA. But first, this is CNF, the greatest podcast in the world. And let's hear from that flagship sponsor. Discover your story with Baypath University's fully online MFA in creative nonfiction writing. Christine Brooks recalls her experience with Baypath's MFA faculty as being filled with positive reinforcement and commitment. They have a true passion and love for their work. It shines through with every comment, every edit, and every reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer questions big and small, and it's obvious that their years of experience as writers and teachers have made a faculty that I doubt can be beat anywhere. Don't just take her word for it. Apply now at baypath.edu slash MFA. Classes begin January 21st. You know what else sponsors this podcast? My monthly newsletter. This is going to be real important heading into 2020, so you need to heed this house ad and subscribe to the newsletter at brendanomero.com. Hey, hey, once a month, maybe, maybe more. We'll keep it once a month for now. No spam. Can't beat it. All right. I'm going to say something real controversial here. Star Wars was awesome. I loved it. Got it? Well, okay, this is CNF, Creative Nonfiction Podcast, where I talk to badass people about the craft of telling true stories. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and consider leaving a little love over on Apple Podcasts. Let's hit 100 ratings and reviews, man. I hope I've made something worthy of your time and worthy of your endorsement. It means a lot coming from you. Reach out via email, creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or concerns. Sonia Hamer, today's guest, the last of 2019, wrote an essay that is so multi-layered and multifaceted that I'm not entirely sure how she did it. I know I could never write anything quite like it. Not in a million years. Certainly, maybe, maybe in a million. I would say maybe in a million years I could, but realistically it's just we're not gonna get there i'm gonna i'm gonna fall far short of a million years of age hence if you can't do interview right it's a great piece what can i say anyway i hope you had a nice holiday doing whatever it is you do this is the last part of the year lots to reflect on i hope you take time to reflect a bit also and hone your goals and sharpen your focus that's big thing I'm trying to do this year so you know but above all as you reflect set those goals go easier on yourself advice I'm trying to take myself hard to do but worth trying to heed if you know what I mean enough from me man Sonia Hamer is here she's gonna close out 2019 she's the hammer of the year hammer hammer no it's just hammer here she is I think we 
we should dive right into to your essay and true story and and just go and go from there. Um, yeah, I love the I love your very short opening paragraph, which talks about you know the the passing of your grandmother, and then the final couple sentences go. You know, three and a half months have passed. Life has gone on. That's where the pig comes in. So, <laughs> so yeah. So like, uh, take us to that moment of of what of getting adopting this pig, and uh, you know what it does to you know what it does to your life essentially. Yeah. So it was just a sort of a strange moment where I, I think um, I was spending some time with my dad and this sort of standard thing where we don't always um, like we we both care about each other, don't always express it well. And I I forget how pigs came up, but, you know, um, he essentially found out that one could adopt a pet pig. Uh, at some point and it went on for a few weeks and you know it was a joke that became um a, a living pig <laughs> we were both at turning points in our lives at respective and very different turning points because you know there's quite a few years between my father and I and um uh, but I think that that was a, a way for both of us to I hesitate to say deal with what we were feeling. It was probably more of a way to not deal with what we were feeling, but to not deal with it together um, in sort of a, a joint action. So why a pig versus any other dog or any other animal? <laughs> um, you know, I think it's just the strange, the strangeness of it. Yeah, the, the eccentricity uh, was appealing. <laughs> the outrageousness, yeah. You just sort of... Um, definitely a bad reason to bring an animal into your life um the the joke that went too far but you know um <laughs> i wonder to you so you said like getting the, this pig essentially it was in, in a way a, a way for you you and your your father to to not deal with what was going on in front of you um it, what has you know is, is that how your relationship has always been with your dad you know i feel like a lot of relationships have like some external object that they um latch on to as a way like for both parties to prove the relationship matters to them and there've been like a number of that object those objects over the years like i you know um there's this country singer named Kinky Friedman who you've probably <laughs> never heard of but he's um sorry that was a hipster <laughs> thing to say but uh yeah, he's just a strange um, Texan. He he's run for governor a couple times, and he's um, his whole thing is he's a you know a Jewish boy from West Texas. And my dad really latched on. To, he got found like a CD of his somewhere, and like latched on to Kiki Friedman. And I was about ten at that time, so you know I latched on too. And that was like something we could both come to together. Is <laughs> Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys? So. Yeah, I would say that um, there's always been that element there. Well, yeah, I think uh, fathers in particular, uh, and I, I don't suspect that you know, this uh, it, um, this is uncommon with like mothers and children as well. But oftentimes, I think it, it has more to do with fathers. It's like with sons, oftentimes it's sports, and like that's their way of communicating with their with their kids. They can't say anything direct because that would that would show some sort of vulnerability, but oftentimes you can 
talk through sport. And so I suspect with you and this this musician, but also this pig, too, in this essay, this is a way for you guys to convey various messages without actually having to come out and say it directly, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. It's 100%. It's our football, I guess. It's funny that you mentioned the opening of the of the essay, because like I like that is not the opening I would have I would have chosen on my own. And it's not the opening I originally sent to Creative Nonfiction uh, magazine. Oh, nice. All right. Yeah. Well, what was the original one? Uh, let's see. I think it was a line that I was just way too attached to called. It was like when my grandmother died, my father bought a pig. Mm-hmm. And that was how the essay started. So I ended up being so attached to it that I couldn't see that it didn't really work as an effective opening or lead to an effective opening for the essay. And so I owe a lot to the editor at True Story um, for really pushing me to, you know, we we need to figure out a, a way to open this essay. And it might look like cutting out some of the stuff you have and moving this paragraph up here. So, yeah, I just wanted to mention that. Uh, because that's yeah. cool. I, I, uh, even in, a, a an essay I had published with, uh, in the, the quarterly a couple years ago, um, I had this sort of irreverent throat clearing, maybe first 200 yeah. words that, uh, but they accepted it anyway, because they, because Hattie could see that there was, there was something good there. And we, you know, we cut all that out. So I, what was that like for you, like being edited in this piece, the fact that the fact that they accepted it for this, even though your original, like they could see the the good in it, even though it needed some work. Like, what was that like for you working through those kind of edits? I mean, it was a, it was an amazing experience because I've never had an experience. I've never had that happen before. Like, I've never had an editor uh, care enough about my writing to try to make it um, so much better. And so I was just uh, so blown away by what Hattie helped me see about this essay and how how she helped me um push it beyond what I had what I had sent in yeah I think it was a very educational experience that like I can carry forward you know it just taught me a lot about about writing um and it taught me a lot that I can use uh as an editor myself yeah Yeah, it's it's it working with a really good editor like teaches you it kind of what does it do, really? It kind of lets you know that these things are are fluid, and it takes like a lot of work. And there's a lot of craftsmanship that goes into making something read really fluidly and smooth. And that it can, it's okay to have sort of herky jerky, early rougher drafts. And if you have an editor with a good eye, that you can work the, you can mold it, you can shape it, and it can still come together beautifully but it was definitely you know radically different than what you thought was this beautiful idea when you submitted it so it's like it's kind of in it's kind of inspiring to know that things can be really labored over and worked over to get to something that is you know readable and fun and artful oh yeah for sure it's <laughs> it's definitely um comforting that you can because uh the idea that something just comes out fully formed and is uh perfect is is way more intimidating than the idea that you can put you can put work into it and you can get help from other people to try to make something um you know publishable 
Yeah, I used to think that about about Hemingway's work early on, like when I was in my, you know, when I was just starting to take on writing seriously and I was like really obsessed with with him especially. And I it just read so it his work was so tight and lean and it seemed it was so easy to read that it made it feel like it wasn't labored over and that it just came out like that. And that was like you were saying kind of intimidating. But now like once you're in this long enough, you realize that it is you can really labor and tinker over this and and it it does it comes out through it comes out through the work and it, so you don't have to be as intimidated you have to realize that even the masters that we think it just comes out fully formed it's like no it's anything but if anything they're going through 40 and 50 drafts to get it just yeah. right and i mean like the the great gadsby too with Fitzgeralds. i mean that's a that's a, another book that's like really lean completely like owes so much to its editor and yeah you know there's just most i think most pieces of writing i think about are, are like that either the the uh the writer themselves like edited them in a very labor intensive way or they had a great relationship with an editor that helped them work through it um or both I reread Gatsby every single year. Like it's one of it's a top oh, five wow. book for me. Yeah, I read it every oh. now about this time of year in December. I or I always reread it. Um, it's it, it for that reason. It's so lean and good, and it's really funny. And the writing is is beautiful. It's it's, it's unlike anything I could ever write, and that's mm -hmm. good because it's just not my my style per se. But I just I love it for the story, the leanness, and even though it's a novel, it's in in effect a memoir and so it is very non-fiction-y even though it's a, it, even though it's a novel so i'm always coming back to it yeah i mean the faux the faux memoir genre is really interesting like that sort of first person narrator stance like i, I just started reading moby dick for the first time and it also has like that famous sort of effaced narrator but not effaced um ish, you know like um caraway You've got Ishmael sort of watching and narrating, and it gives it that layer that you're more familiar with in, in personal essays or narrative nonfiction. It's interesting why our brains latch on to that, that mode of storytelling. It could be that the narrator, when that's done really well, it feels like they're a, a, a true stand-in for you as the reader in, mm -hmm. in an unintrusive unobtrusive way like they're there observing this thing and reporting back to you and they're not getting in the way of the story they're just kind of there observing on your behalf and I feel like my favorite memoirs and my favorite essays I'm kind of blanking on some of the exact ones but my favorite memoirs are always the one where the narrator is looking outward and is actually telling someone else's story above their own and just like Gatsby as a, as a model like I think that is if you can write a memoir that's like that to me, that is like the gold standard. And that's just my taste, but that's just where I gravitate towards. Is that something you really like too? Like you were saying that like we kind of latch onto that. Do you, do you like that mode of storytelling? I definitely do. I, but I also appreciate like when the narrator has a very strong presence and, and voice. And I think that that persona can also be an important tool in, um, in writing. It just depends on what story you're telling and what job you're trying to, to do with the writing. There's a David Foster Wallace essay, a very long title, uh, profiling Mike Joyce, this tennis player from like the mid nineties. Yeah. Have, have you read that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've, is that in Consider the Lobster or is that in a different collection? He has a, several collections of his essays. Yeah. That, 
That one's in uh, supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The cruise ship it, essay, right? Is that yeah, that? yeah. Yeah. That one. That's the lead essay, I think. And oh, actually, no. I think it's towards the back. But that's what it's named after, the cruise ship essay. And uh, but yeah, that profile on Mike Joyce, where you know you've got the the pyrotechnics of his writing style, but he's also basically profiling how hard it is to break through on that upper tier of tennis. And then, of course, this this player, Mike Joyce. So it's like it's outward looking, but it also has just those just such kinetic language that it just pops off the page. So there's a great balance yeah. of voice and looking out. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, and there's he also has like a profile of John McCain that mm, yeah. is not, I think, is not quite as formally uh it, it's not quite as wallace because I think he was writing it for like a major news outlet of some sort that I don't remember, but... Yeah, Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone, yeah. Really, probably a very difficult balance to achieve. I can't say I've tried it myself, but I can imagine it being just agonizing. Yeah, I've tried it, and uh, that's a hard... It's hard to imitate that because when you imitate it, it comes off of trying way too hard, mm. you know? Yeah. It, like. Because, you know, there are some people who are so singularly unique. You know, that's redundant, of course, but it's they are just on their own plane. And if you try to imitate them, it's like, oh, yeah, you're just trying to be that person. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I've, I've gone through that of trying to be really like funny and witty and, you know, verbose and using footnotes. And it's just like uh, here it's it's pointing the finger too much at myself. And that's just ultimately not who I am and not where my strengths lie so I just have to pivot and go elsewhere with my taste but it's uh but yeah sometimes you gotta you gotta like fuck around like that you gotta yeah. go and imitate people and just straight up copy their style and see if it works I, I know you've read uh widely with like Maggie Nelson and uh I think Rebecca Solden and some other people like uh who are who are some people similarly that you try to kind of emulate to you know try to reach your own your own style. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I find, so I'm reading this memoir called The Undying right now by Ann Boyer, and she's a poet, and she does this sort of lyrical um, weaving together thing, but she also, like, she doesn't um, hold herself back from, like, maybe more analytic statements as opposed to just focusing solely on images, and I think I find that really compelling in her writing and I found myself doing it sort of unconsciously. Maybe it would be a good exercise to, you know, just call a spade a spade and, and do it on purpose. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like um, uh, people in art, in art school have to like um, paint in the style of certain artists at some point. They, they'll like have projects where they're like paint something like, uh, like Cezanne or like um, Picasso. And I guess that just that exercise of trying to imitate teaches you a lot. Um, yeah, you've got to do that. It's yeah. the only way you'll you'll uh, you know you'll you'll come to anything that is semi-original or at least something that right. feels like it's coming from like your core. And you know who knows? There's probably a you know a million Banksy imitators out there, <laughs> but the. But those yeah. people will eventually come to their own style of street art, or maybe they'll they'll take the street art and somehow juxtapose it against like gallery stuff, and they'll come to their own thing by just taking all those influences. It's the only way, and then you put it together and you boil it, you reduce it down, you season it appropriately, and then you, there you go. Yeah. Sonya's soup. 
Sanya soup. I'm not sure I want, I want, if that's the soup of the day, I'm not sure I want it, but you know, um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, we talk about cre creating, um, but really most art is fundamentally like synthetic. It's a, it's an exercise in synthesis of influences and, you know, experiences. So, or like, uh, yeah, I guess I use, I use the soup soup metaphor too I like to say the crock pot like I like to think about my brain as a crock pot and like you throw everything in there and you let it sit for a while well that's a perfect metaphor in a lot of ways too because it embedded in that is you know eight to ten hours on low heat you know it's <laughs> yeah right so it's like you have to be patient with a lot of this stuff it's not going to come out in like 30 seconds in the microwave you have to have the confidence that you've put the right ingredients down and then sometimes these things just have to sit and percolate and marinate and just bubble together and get tender for a long long time and then it's ready and then it's like okay all that time was worth it oh yeah but i mean during the eight hours it's not <laughs> it's not so easy to just sit there and be like hmm yeah. Yeah, you want to think like, oh, this is starting to smell good, but uh, I don't know. Like, I'm, <laughs> maybe I, I want this thing out. Exactly. Yeah, maybe it's ready to serve, but then you bite into it, or someone else bites into it, and you're like, oh no, there's like a... that's a it's very red, very red <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's great. I love it. that's such a perfect metaphor, um, and it's definitely probably going to be in the title of this episode. So it's like. <laughs> Crockpot right froze. <laughs> Crockpot froze. I like that. <laughs> Just throw everything in and uh, let it let it sit there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I guess coming back to like having an editor um, really work through your essay, like that that is the feeling where you 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 send it out and it's still pretty it's pretty bloody in the center. And um, there, if you see like it's really nice when an editor, despite that like undercooked nature sees you know oh this could be really good why don't you stick it in the oven for just a little longer you know right it's a, it's a great feeling yeah so as you were writing pig in essay which i love the title too was that always the title yeah that was um that and the the first line i was very attached to were what came to me first so. nice so so as you're writing this like this essay has i mean you look at the title and you're like oh this is going to be some very cute an essay about an animal and and oh man, I hope this animal doesn't die at the <laughs> end. But this is is so multi-layered with the you know the relationship with your dad, of course the the pig, your history with bulimia, um, sexual assault. There's the death of your grandmother. There's just so much in this essay. How did you balance all of those things so it actually felt cohesive? Um. So after we talked about this last time, I went back and found my notebook from when I was writing Pig, because it, it is, it's, uh, I finished it over two years ago now, so it's it's been a while. Um, but what I was relying on at the time very heavily was something I learned from um, a teacher of mine, Lacey Johnson, who's, you know, also a great writer, a great nonfiction writer and a great influence. Um, but she has this, she really enjoys talking about triangles uh, when she's trying to explain how to write essays and balance essays. And so one of her triangles is um, uh, mania, mystery, mastery. So if you like each of those goes at a point on the triangle. So the narrator of the essay has like a mania that they're obsessed with. 
um, a mastery, like some sort of subject material that they're, um, that they have a grasp over and they use throughout the essay as a lens and a mystery, which maybe is like the underlying questions or questions that the, um, the narrator is in the process of trying to figure out. So I use that triangle. Um, I'm not sure how effectively I used it because it's, I don't know that each element of the essay would map exactly onto that, onto that uh, model. But the other thing that I um, was thinking about was the idea that um, what defines a lyric essay, at least for me, is that there's some sort of um, epiph epiphany through the synthesis of these things. So like at some point, all the strands come together and there's some sort of turning point or change or epiphany or whatever emotional alteration, whatever word you want to use. And so I was thinking about the essay as being organized around that, um, around whatever emotional realization I came to in the process of these events. And was that uh, epiphany in this piece when you were uh, kind of pulling back what your grandmother had gone through and trying to show that, uh, show that to your father, to what he was kind of avoiding the whole time? Yeah. I, and I think so. And I mean, it's, um, it's interesting because like, as I was working on this essay, you know, I brought what I was working on in the essay back into my own life. And, you know, it resulted in a lot of conversations with my dad about like, why he was angry at her, you know, what I thought about the things that I had read about her life. And, you know, there's still a lot I haven't told him or talked to him about. But there was a feedback between the essay and like, my life and my relationship with my dad and what I was at least trying to talk to about talk to him about and I also think that um the essay gave me a way to work through things like maybe in a less well I don't want to say less destructive because I you know I don't really know what the repercussions would be if he read that essay but um it gave me a way to work through and think about all the mess inside of me without like maybe putting the mess onto him. And I think it let me see him a little more clearly and accept maybe, you know, some of the ways in which we're both a little limited. I think the emotional epiphany was just that there's, um, that these feelings are there. So, so is a lot of love and affection and, you know, all of these things can coexist in some manner. There's a passage, uh, partway through that uh you uh you you write my father's words leave me furious how can he let his adolescent anger be so blinding that jerk that dick that fucking piece of shit his thoughtlessness i feel feeds my silence and of course you go on a little bit and uh i wrote in the margin there just like as a question that i want to ask you like how how hard was that to write for for you to go into that to be that raw how hard was that for to to approach that you know, uh, pretty, pretty difficult. Um, there's definitely, there's definitely a big impulse to, uh, hold back from emotions like that in writing, especially when, uh, people you care about are involved. I think the thing that helped me through it, uh, was I remember that particular section because I remember, again, Lacey suggesting, uh, that I use, um, a, 
an uncharitable reading and then a charitable reading way of approaching that that section. Mm. So I have, you know, an angry paragraph and then a more charitable paragraph under that. And so I, I do think that the um, those two work together for me, like both in the essay and emotionally that like having this more charitable interpretation helped me give myself permission to be more uh, emotionally raw, I guess was the word you used, and uh, open in the section above it. Yeah, and it, like you close out that paragraph too, like it's just this very visceral thing, and the all day my rage leaves me breathless, leaking and shaking as pigs' delicate toes click across the floor. So even as like you're in this raw, visceral rage, you know, the, the end of this paragraph is just this little playful TikTok of the pig clicking across the, across the floor, which of course is sort of the connective tissue between you and your dad in a right. lot of ways. So it's, it really is this wonderful sort of juxtaposition of this anger versus this sort of oblivious, uh, oblivious little pig, well, big pig at this point <laughs> walking <laughs> across the floor. Very big pig. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess not for a pig. He's not very big, but no, I, I mean, I think it's helped a lot by the fact that the, a pig is just, it's just a, it's a really intelligent animal. It's also a slightly ridiculous animal. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, it's an animal we're not uh, used to seeing in certain contexts. So, yeah, just the, um, it was a, a very useful tool to have uh, at sort of critical emotional junctures. Yeah, and it's nice that it kind of provides uh, levity in, to, in, in the essay, too, because anytime the pig pops in, it kind of it relieves some of the tension in a way. Right. Yeah, which is, you know, what the pig did in real life, too, right? He gave us something to focus on and talk about. So probably writing it that way came pretty naturally because that's, you know, how I experienced it and how we, we use the pig functionally. Mm. Um, yeah. And later in the essay, too, you also write, and this this might be a good time to ask you, given that you have probably a good two years distance from the Sonia that wrote this and the Sonia you are today, um, you wrote that, I can't remember a time when I felt safe in my flesh. And I'd extend to you, like, are you, are you any closer to feeling safer in your own flesh? How has that progressed for you? Um, yeah, I've, I've come a long way. Um... With the, the eating disorder, like, is in the body dysmorphia is all much, much better. I mean, that stuff sort of ne never completely goes away, I don't think, but I'm a lot farther away from it, um, which is a really nice bruiser because it's mm -hmm. not, a, not a good headspace to be. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, part of my process of maturing has been, been um, to trust my agency a little more about my body and my decisions. And I definitely have come a lot closer to feeling in control of that and embracing that. I think there's still there's still certain things that, um, you know, are, are difficult, like just, uh, you know, um, navigating relationships when you um, have like self-esteem or self our, our boundary issues or all of these issues that can come along with um, certain things. It, like it's just, it's just a very ongoing process. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I've, yeah. I've learned a lot and I have a lot more tools. So 
Well, that's great. And uh, as we wind down here, Sonia, um, I, I wonder for 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 listeners out there who might be struggling with uh, you know a piece of work they might be uh, you know just toggling around with, uh, maybe given that uh, pig to me is a very fearless essay. Like it it, it comes from it comes from a place of of, of fear and desperation in a lot of ways, I feel, at least that's how I read it. And you wrote through that and got here. So you had to be unbridled and fearless. So maybe for, given that you've ha- had that experience with this, um, for people who might be struggling with that, how, how might you advise them to be un- more unbridled and to lean into that fear to get the, the best, uh, the best thing on the page for them? I mean, I think, probably to at least try and let go of the um, whatever, all the I can't do this uh, for whatever reason you have. You say I can't do this because it will hurt this person or because um, uh, this isn't a thing I should be talking about or it will make people think this thing. Like to to constantly be talking back against those those reasons that your brain comes up with. Because, you know they they're always they're always going to come back and crop back up and you just have to constantly it's a constant process of saying no to them or saying that like something else is more important that's helpful i mean i think also just having a strong um base in the rest of your life like having a strong accepting network or people that you can go to to talk about uh uh maybe not your writing but like what you're struggling with emotionally um can be really helpful with uh, writing that's very close to you and sort of giving you um, a place to, to rest so that you have the emotional energy to come back to whatever you're working on and, um, you know, uh, fight back mentally against your anxieties or your um, fears or your worries. I dig the tight 30 CNFers. Sure, you can't quite dig as deep on some tactical matters but maybe there's ways i can still shoehorn in some goodies in a tighter package right that's the black album nature of the next phase of the podcast same power tighter package because this is why i know an hour is a big ask when you've probably got 10 other podcasts and netflix and baby yoda and homework and reading and romantic love to engage in The more I think of it, putting out a show longer than 30 minutes seems downright rude and maybe even selfish. How dare you? Subscribe to the newsletter, friend. There's good stuff coming to subscribers. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. BrendanOmera.com. Hey, hey. If you deem the show worthy of sharing, link up to it on social media. You can tag me and the show at CNFBot. As you know, scaling back on social media. Heard. So if I don't give you those mad props and fist bumps right away, that is why. So in any case, like I said, last pot of the year. Can you believe it? We've made it another year doing this hot mess of a podcast. It is time to go. We will just keep rolling into 2020, man. So let's do this, CNFers. Happy New Year. This train doesn't stop. Because if you can do, interview. See ya. <laughs>